We made USAA insurance for veterans like James. When he found out how much USAA was helping members save, he said, It's time to switch. We'll help you find the right coverage at the right price. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. Restrictions apply. Welcome to Adventures in the Spirit with Jared Lasky. Our hope is that you will be encouraged and equipped through this podcast as we have conversations with friends from around the world. You can subscribe to our podcast and go to our website, firebornministries.com, and sign up for our email list to stay up to date on Fireborn Ministries. And may you have your own adventures in the Spirit. And now we hope you enjoy today's podcast. And welcome to Adventures in the Spirit. I'm your host, Jared Lasky, and I'm excited today to introduce you to Crystal Cupper. Crystal is a freelance writer specializing in magazines and special projects. Since earning her journalism degree, she's written for clients such as Zondervan, Focus on the Family, and the Salvation Army, and many others. She specializes in sports writing, military family issues, and marriage topics, faith and Christianity, and even orphan justice. She's a lifelong sports nut. She counts speaking at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, as one of her favorite career moments. She's interviewed athletes from the NBA, PGA, MLB, NFL, PRCA, and the Olympics. And of course, she loves the Oregon Ducks. Crystal Cupper, freelance journalist. My name is Crystal Cupper. I'm 34 years old. I was raised in a small farm town in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. I am an Air Force wife. I've been married to my husband, Nicholas, for 15 years. We just celebrated 17 years together. We have four children, ages 11, 8, 8, and 6. One of those eight years old, one of the eight-year-olds is a child adopted from Armenia. We adopted her three years ago. Her name is Guyana, and she frequently appears in my writings and my talks and my thoughts. I have a master's degree in international community development. I did my master's thesis on the relationship between the American church and the overseas orphanage industry. Orphan justice is a topic that I am endlessly passionate about. It shows up in my fundraising, in my everyday thoughts, in my chats with sometimes perfect strangers. I write about it. I sing about it when I can. It just it plays a very dominant role in what I am passionate about. I have been a journalist since I was 16 years old. My first real official job besides piano playing was working for our small town newspaper. I got my undergrad in journalism and I started magazine writing at the age of 21 and that has been my job ever since then. I love my job. I love writing about social justice issues and the intersection of faith. I love I love interviewing people and profiling people. I love hearing people's stories. And that really is the fuel that keeps me going. I find people endlessly fascinating. And I can find the interest in pretty much anyone. So uh, that is me in a nutshell for my hobbies and free time. I love to run. I love to exercise. I've announced all of my pregnancies at the finish line of a marathon or a half marathon. That's awesome. Yes, and I, I run at least 100 to 150 miles a month, bare minimum. And uh, it is my time to talk to God, to be outside in nature. I am not an indoor person. I love being outside. I love movement. I love beauty and art and creativity. And for me, exercising just checks all of those boxes and it allows me to eat more chocolate. 
Love it. That's awesome. So you said, how old were you when you first got into journalism? I was 16 when I got my first reporter job at a local newspaper. Was that the Crestwell Chronicle? It was the Crestwell Chronicle. So the listeners don't know that I had youth pastor there years ago. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. That takes me way back. I know. What year was that? Like 2002, 2003, 2001 four? is when I got a job there. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, so you started writing at a young age. Uh, I, I was even doing something called the Penguin Post in the eighth grade. <laughs> Looking back, I'd forgotten how many articles I'd written. Turns out I collected them. Mm. I only remember one, but I guess I'd done like 10 or so. It's easy to forget. You got involved in journalism, and then you've actually had some really big interviews. You've interviewed celebrities and others. Would you mind sharing about maybe one of your most favorite interviews? Sure. Well, at this point, I've interviewed dozens and dozens of celebrities and professional athletes, possibly hundreds. I've written hundreds. I've had hundreds and hundreds of published articles, but I've never actually gone back to count everything because they sort of all run together. But for about eight years, I had a sports column in a Canadian newspaper where every month I got to interview a professional athlete for my sports column. And this was pretty early on in my career. And because it was a Canadian newspaper, it was almost always a hockey player. Someone either from the NHL or from the WHL, which is kind of like minor league hockey. I had never actually attended a single hockey game, ever. Even at a young, for young kids or professional, I'd never been to a hockey game. Because in Oregon, it just doesn't get cold enough in the winter to have a full-time hockey culture. Even though I love all sports except for soccer, which we could talk about later. But I had never had a chance to fall in love with hockey. So I started interviewing all these NHL players and I literally would be Googling what they were saying to me as they were talking to me on the phone. And I was so grateful that they couldn't see what I was doing because I wanted to present myself as a knowledgeable sports writer. But it was a fantastic education. I learned how to talk to all sorts of different people. I've interviewed a professional athlete from every single major sport except for tennis, which is sad because I love tennis, but I've interviewed rodeo cowboys, NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, you name it. I have a lot of PGA golfers. One of my favorite interviews because I love um, ice skating. I got to interview Scott Hamilton early on in my career. And it was such a special treat for me. My voice was shaking the whole interview and he was so kind and attentive. And I did not realize how small he is, nor what his amazing backstory is. And I encourage you to look it up because it's really a phenomenal miracle that he's alive, that he's still alive. He's an adoptive father. I love his heart for the orphan. But he, seeing Scott Hamilton on my caller ID was one of the highlights of my career. Another person I've interviewed who may not be as famous, but really struck me is Kyle Maynard who is the very first person to crawl to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. And the reason that he crawled to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro is because he was born without arms or legs. He's also in the National Wrestling Hall of Fame. He was a college wrestler with no arms or legs. He has modeled for Abercrombie and Fitch. He is an inspirational speaker, sort of like Nick Vujicic. I I hope I'm saying his last name right. And he has the most positive attitude. And I've actually interviewed Kyle several times now for different publications. And every time I talk to him, I am reminded that 
God takes what the world sees as disposable and he uses it in powerful and mighty ways. And Kyle today, he lives on his own. He can type 40 words a minute. He drives with no arms or legs. He has an adapted vehicle. He just has a phenomenal story. And so to have access to the inner thoughts of someone with that incredible of a story is such a privilege and I don't take it lightly. And I love that I can ask really intrusive questions. And I get paid to do it. That's awesome. Which is so much fun. So I love um, speaking to people with disabilities, amplifying their voices. Our adopted daughter has spina bifida as well as a host of other medical issues. And I love showing the world that she is the same, even though she may come in a different package. She has the same emotions, the same talents and thoughts and dreams and drives. And I love that what the world shames, God lifts up. And I see that it has so many spiritual implications for me. And so I love being able to do that through my job and getting paid to do it. Yeah, that's awesome. So you mentioned, you know, Jesus is in your life. You spend time with God as you run, as you write. So what are some God encounters that you've had as a journalist? Maybe this is while you're interviewing someone. or What have you seen God do through these? Well, the most obvious thing that comes to mind is I know of multiple children who have been adopted because directly of something that I wrote. I have had people write into the magazines that published my work. So it was like a letter to the editor, and they wrote in and said, we had no idea that orphanages were in this state of trauma for children, and it had always been in the back of my mind, but Crystal's article was the final impetus. And actually, I know some children today. I've actually met them in real life, children who have been adopted because the parents read something of mine. They read Guyana's story. They saw our family on American Ninja Warrior, and they actually started and completed the adoption process because of something that I had done. That is mind-blowing to me. So that's the most obvious, that's the biggest, but I've also had a chance where I've spoken with celebrities, and I'm an empath. I very much feel what other people are going through. I'm a middle child. I have a classic middle child personality. So there's been times when I have sensed over the phone or in person, the celebrity is having a hard time or is feeling tired or any of a range of emotions. And I've been able to stop the interview and say, you know what? I really feel like you just need prayed for right now. So can I stop what I'm doing and pray for you right now? And I've actually had, I've had one celebrity cry because no interviewer had ever asked them for that. I wasn't asking them for something. Um, I was offering something to them, not in a suck-up way, but in a, I see you as a human right now and not as a famous person who can do something for me. I've actually had celebrities pray for me. Last year, I was walking through a really dark season, and I was interviewing um, an American Idol contestant who did actually quite well on the show, and she's doing quite well today. And I was walking through a really dark time, and she stopped every she stopped the interview, and I had not mentioned it to her. And she said, I really feel like you need prayer right now, so I'm just going to stop, and I'm going to pray. And she She's prayed specifically and prophetically for something that was going on in my life right now. And that blew my mind. And recently, um, I woke up to her on my Pandora. She was the very first song on my Pandora. And she's an up-and-coming artist. And so I thought, oh, that is so cool that she's she's getting the success. And she did it for her faithfulness and so many other things. So, so many times when I'm writing, I don't necessarily write the perfect thing the first time. I don't necessarily have the talent to be the greatest writer all the time, but there have been times 
most of the time actually writing just comes so easy for me I look up at the spot in my brain and there's what I'm supposed to write and I really truly feel that is the Holy Spirit writing through me because I have been told many times that what I wrote was the perfect thing that somebody else needed to read or to hear read to them and it could be something small just a small encouragement it could be something large like you need to adopt this child but I know that so often I will go back and read something I have written and I think, man, that's so good. And it was so good that there's no way it could have been from me. It had to have been from the Holy Spirit because I can only go so far. I hope you're enjoying this podcast of Adventures in the Spirit. But we're going to take a brief break right now to give you an opportunity to hear about a resource that we have to offer you from Fireborn Ministries. Veronica Ortiz, Rivera's worst nightmare came true November 16th, 2010. When her doorbell rang at Camp Lejeune in Jacksonville, North Carolina, three men were standing outside, two U.S. Marines and one man wearing a U.S. Navy uniform. At first, she didn't know why they were there, but reality set in when one of them said, we need to speak with you regarding your husband. May we come inside? In this heartfelt story about grief, family, and appreciating our nation's heroes, she recalls hearing the devastating news that her husband, Javier Ortiz Rivera, had been killed in Afghanistan by an improvised explosive device and how she broke the news to her children. In this book, she celebrates the memory of her husband, their love, and how her family stuck together during the most difficult of times. Drawing on their faith, they continue to honor their hero through how they live their lives. Written by Veronica Ortiz Rivera and Jared Lasky. You can purchase a paperback, hardcover, or ebook of Veronica's Hero online from Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Lulu.com, or the Apple Store. You'd actually mentioned American Ninja Warrior. Yes. I didn't give anybody a backstory on that, so uh-huh. would you mind just giving a brief description of that? Because, you know, we watched it because sure. we're obviously fans and friends. Right. But it, knowing and seeing that video of your family's story, mm-hmm. that inspirational what God was doing in you, through you. You mentioned how you've heard how that inspired other people Mm -hmm. on American Ninja Warrior. So would you mind sharing that? Sure. Well, my husband and I are both athletic. We both love using our physical bodies to glorify Christ taking good care of our temples. And so we had, when we were stationed in England, we were stationed in England through the Air Force for three years. And one of the tastes of home that really kept us going morally as far as a morale booster, sorry, that was an incorrect adverb. One of the things that kept us going for a morale booster was watching American Ninja Warrior together as a family. And we, our two, our first two children are boys. And so they were especially into the climbing on things and the jumping on things and the swinging. And they just loved the kinetics of it all. And so they, of course, said, Dad, you should do that. Why don't you try that? And Nick had never done anything along those lines. But he said, well, boys, when we get stationed back in America again, I will try it for you. And then, of course... God had in his plan our next assignment after England. We were 10 minutes away from the very first ninja gym in the entire country where a ton of famous ninjas trained on a daily basis. So Nick started going, and to his great surprise, he was really good at it. And so he had only been ninjaing for a couple of months when he submitted his video, his application video. Now, I don't have the hard numbers, but thousands and thousands and thousands of people applied to be on this show, and they only take about 500. And then from there, only about 75 ninjas get aired on the actual footage. So he applied, 
and he made it. He got accepted onto the show, and not only did he get accepted onto the show, he did well, and our family's story was shown. And this was during season 10, which was last year, not this year, because they already finished with season 11. So they sent a film crew out. They filmed us for about two straight days for our family, our family's story. They talked to Guyana. They talked to us. They filmed Nick training at the gym, us all together, and then it aired last summer. And a lot of people saw that, and it made a big impact on them, not necessarily that Nick was so strong and did fairly well for a rookie on the show but our family's story is what made the impact so if we can lift up God's ideal of family he intended for children to be in families he intended for families to stay together if we can in any way amplify God's vision for the family we want to do that so ninja to us is a platform to share the awesomeness of special needs adoption and the glory and the greatness that can be found through sacrifice love it that's awesome. Thank you so much. That's, if you guys have not seen that episode, can they find it on YouTube? You can or Google it. can they follow it. your husband? Yes. My husband is on Instagram under Nick Cupper, N-I-C-K-K-U-P-P-E-R is how you spell his name. You can follow his Instagram account where he posts all his training videos. You can also Google that episode. If you Google Nick Cupper, American Ninja Warrior will be the very first thing that pops up. And you are passionate about orphan justice, so would you mind describing what orphan justice is for our listeners who may not know exactly what it is? Sure. Orphan justice is somewhat of an offshoot of the generalized social justice specifically for the orphan, and in previous centuries, decades, administrations, orphan justice might look like something different. So a hundred years ago to an American, orphan justice was keeping them fed and clothed and educated and warm in an orphanage within the four walls of a safe, loving orphanage to another culture or community. It might look like kinship care, keeping them in local foster families. So it's somewhat changed throughout time. But today, the accepted version of orphan justice, as within the development and aid community, is doing justice for the orphan and amplifying and maximizing their success and talent and potential instead of just keeping them safe. So we don't want to do the bare minimum and keep them alive anymore, as we've seen with previous Eastern European dictatorships. Just keeping them alive is not doing them justice. We're traumatizing them, or actually it's a further generational curse. So we want to do the best by them because we were once orphans and God brought us into his family. And so in different cultures, that will look different. So that's why you don't ever say orphan justice means adopting every single child who needs adopted because not every kid needs adopted. Sometimes the best thing to do is to keep them in their original family through support of that original family. Sometimes the best thing is to remove them from the family. Every case is different, but we want to do the best by that child. And that doesn't mean what's easiest for us as adults. So how did God lead you into orphan justice? Well, I grew up in a foster and adoptive family. We started fostering when I was eight years old, and both of my sisters are adopted from foster care. The minute that we started fostering and I met our very first foster son, my foster brother, I just instantly knew at the age of eight years old, I very strongly felt a presence. I felt a conviction that this was going to be my life. Perhaps not foster care, but I knew that something in my life would revolve around taking care of the least of these. So from that moment forward, I always had it in the back of my mind. I was going to foster and adopt. I was going to save all the children. For a really long time when I was a teenager, I thought that that would mean that I would move to Africa. I would start a few orphanages. I would earn a PhD. I would change the world. And as I have grown and matured and read the literature, read the science of it, gained wisdom, went through my master's program, that I I laugh at that now because that's so 
naive and Americanized and immature and selfish, really. But thankfully, Jesus has not given up on me in that regard, and I'm continually learning. But that's where it came from. I always knew I wanted to adopt. I always knew I wanted to help keep families together. Now, we've been friends of you A and your husband time. for the last 18 some years. You were my youth pastor. You were our youth pastor. Your wedding was amazing at Cresswell Christian Center. Mm-hmm. And then we got that military connection. Mm-hmm. You guys, you know, career in the Air Force. I did some years in the Marine Corps. So we've all kept in touch. But how were you led? You know, you, you practice what you preach. Mm-hmm. You're an advocate for orphan justice. Mm -hmm. So how did God lead you to adopt in your family? As we journeyed on in our marriage, we started off in the beginning. You have those nice honeymoon conversations where you decide, what are we going to have, a dog or a cat? Whitening toothpaste or cavity prevention toothpaste? Like When you talk about, make those, you're kind of dreaming. Like, oh, we're going to live in a beach house or in the mountains. It's kind of like mash, but with a real person. And so we dreamily on our honeymoon talked about, oh, we'll have children. We'll give birth to children and we'll adopt children. But for years and years, when I'd say, hey, babe, what about now? What about now? What about this child? How about this method? And Nick would say, you know, I don't really feel it's time right now. And we were living in, we were stationed in England and I felt so strongly drawn. I could not get it out of my head. I prayed, God, please take away this desire to adopt. I feel like I'm being drawn into this black hole that will destroy me because I can't get it out of my mind. So if this is not from you, take it away. I don't want this if this is from you. And in response, he doubled it. <laughs> he made me even more passionate and I couldn't get it out of my head. So I said, okay, God, fine. I'm going to take a vow for one year. I will not speak of adoption. I will not speak of anything orphan justice related to my husband. For one year, I'm not going to say anything to him. And if you want us to adopt, you are going to change his mind this year. And then I will know whether or not this is from you. Because I knew I could, I still obviously can make a huge difference in the orphan justice and family preservation world without us adopting. There's so much more than just adopting. So I knew that it was still my lifelong calling but I knew that it, adoption would not be for us if at the end of that year, Nick had not brought it up to me. So about three months into that vow, I saw this photo of a long-lashed Armenian princess with a pageant smile. And I had the exact same feeling when I saw that photo as the first time they put my biological children on my chest. And you have this recognition of, oh, there you are. That's what you look like. And I had seen thousands upon thousands of cute children's photos. So it was not that she was pretty or had a great smile. In fact, my first thought was not a very appropriate response for a Christian that I will not share. And I thought, now is not the time, God. I just took this vow. I, this can't be my child. I must be, it must be something else from my mind. And I just knew it would not leave. And I thought, well, what do I do now? I took this vow. I can't break the vow. So I kept my mouth shut. But another three months passed and Nick asked me, we were having a conversation about our New Year's goals. And we often set uh, community service goals for ourselves. And he asked me, how are your goals coming along? And that year I had set a goal of raising money for two children who needed adoption from the Eastern European area. And so he said, well, tell me about your children. Who did you pick this year? Because Nick has always been very supportive of orphan justice efforts. He just did not feel that it was right to adopt for us at that moment. And so I told him the first one was a Ukrainian teenager. And then the second one, I said, oh, and then there is this five-year-old girl. 
and she is in Armenia, and she has spina bifida and hydrocephalus and some other things. And he was just very cordially chatting on, oh, what's her long-term prognosis? What do the doctors feel she's capable of? And he was being just, it was just a very casual conversation. And so I told him everything, and then it was somewhat silent for a few seconds, and he said, so uh, how would you feel about us adopting her? Just like that. Amazing. And I... That's a god moment. Yes. I think I threw myself into his arms and something along those lines. I was so excited because, again, Nick has seen thousands of cute children's photos because he often, he's very interested in my work. He's very supportive of my volunteer efforts. So he had, lots of times, he had seen these children. He wasn't taken in by the fact that she's physically attractive or anything of that nature. We have no connection to Armenia. It wasn't anything of that. He just saw her and he said he really felt a strong impression. Just like the first time he saw me, he had a very strong impression when he saw Guyana, like, oh, there she is, she's yours, go get her. And so we did, and 13 and a half months later, we brought her home and she became a cupper. That's amazing. What advice would you tell someone who may be interested or entertaining the idea of adopting? I believe that the desire to adopt is very much a God thing, and it can come from good places, but the desire to adopt can often be a naive, Americanized version of selfishness. A lot of times we adopt for reasons that really will not last, they are not sustainable. We have a generic feeling of wanting to help, but we have this idea of us being the wealthy American saviors coming in and rescuing a child. In some cases, that can be true, and I say that very tentatively, but for the most part, we need to check our motivations, why we want to do this. Do we only want to adopt a very pretty, healthy, white baby? Or are we willing to take in a child that nobody else is interested in, such as... Our daughter is in a wheelchair. Nobody else was lined up around the block to come get her because of all of her medical needs that she came with. So we had to ask ourselves, why are we doing this? Is this because it makes us look really good? And we realize now it makes us look really good. We get praised in public all the time in very uncomfortable ways. And you have to make sure it's from God. And you have to ask yourself, am I doing this for the right reasons? I Do I... Am I okay with the fact that this child who I fell in love with in a photo is not the same child I will take home? Am I ready for the surprises of they may have some surprise diagnoses? For example, we had no idea that our daughter is almost deaf. We had no idea. No one at the orphanage knew. We didn't. We actually didn't even know for several months, which is really pathetic on our parts. But you have to be ready for those surprises, and it has to be a lifelong commitment. It is marriage, in a sense, that you are married to this child for life, and there is no going back. You also have to be okay with the fact that you will regret that decision more than once. You will ask yourself, what in the H-E double hockey sticks were you thinking? You will question God. Did I hear from you? Is this really your calling? Did I mess up? Did I screw up my perfect little family? You have to be okay with that tension and the fact that adoption really, really sucks. And I say that in a very loving manner because redemption is hard. It costs Christ his entire life to redeem us. It costs, it, he went through torture on our behalf. So for us to expect that we are going to redeem this adopted child and every single adoption begins with trauma. 
every single adoption. It does not matter if you adopt a healthy baby straight from their mother's womb. They will remember the abandonment. They will remember the separation in their cells. Neurologically, they can remember it. There's all sorts of trauma education. So it doesn't matter if your child is from a good orphanage. They will be traumatized and you will have to go through the trauma of all they have ever known. So you really have to be in the word on a daily basis. You have to be willing to face the fact that you are a terrible person and you will have terrible thoughts run through your mind at multiple intervals and everything that you thought was good about yourself will be exposed. Every weakness you have will come to the fore and you really have to be willing to turn it all over to Christ. It is not something pretty. Adoption is messy. Adoption is terrible. Adoption is beautifully wonderful. And you have to be okay with that, that this is never going to be about you and being a hero, but rather being used of Christ in a very ugly way. And it's not a first option. It is always a plan B. God's ideal plan is for families to stay together. It is never for someone else to step in. I am not the best option as a mother for Guyana. And I have to be okay with that, that her first mother is the best option for Guyana. And I have to realize that that will always be somewhere biologically in her cells. It will always be in her soul and her spirit. And like I said, God redeems, God renews. And I'm going to let him take care of that. But I, in my human strength, can never make an adoption story a success. What I'm hearing is, you mentioned it earlier, surrendering to God. Mm -hmm. But through that tension, you're able to identify with what Christ went through. Absolutely. In a very small way. While you're talking, it's almost like as if I'm seeing him on the cross and the scars and the wounds, but also knowing that through what he went through, there's resurrection. Absolutely. There's life. So there's death. And what I'm hearing, you know, the scripture says that we are to deny ourselves daily. We're to take up our cross and follow him. And the cross is brutal. But at the same time, every day there's the death, but there's also the resurrection. There's that connection between the two. So through your process, even through your trauma of this process, you're talking about the good, the bad, the brutal, but you're surrendering every day. Absolutely. Denying self. And that's actually a very difficult message we don't hear much of, if at all in our day and age in Mm -hmm. North America. Absolutely. You know, the persecuted church understands this every day, Mm -hmm. every day. Here in North America, we're kind of spoiled, honestly. Oh, we're fond of convenience. But we need, so I appreciate your, your rawness, your being real, your transparency, because people need to hear this because our Christian faith needs to identify with the death of Christ. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it needs to identify with his resurrection. Mm Mm-hmm through adoption, you've had a revelation of that. So what is something you believe the church can do to serve or help in this social justice issue? I believe that every Christian should be passionate about social justice. And in my case, it's about orphans and family preservation. For someone else, it might be homelessness. It could be the environment. There's so many different facets But there is something for everyone. Just like with exercise, I get told all the time, especially on the East Coast, I could never be a runner. I can't run. My body is not built to run. And I agree with them. I say, you know what? If you don't run, that's okay. However, if you say, I don't exercise, then that is not okay. Because we all have something. There is all some exercise that our body will naturally fall into and enjoy more than others. Not that we all have to be an Olympic athlete, but the Church of Christ 
the body of Christ is designed to move and it is designed to act and it that. is designed to jump on some facet of the social problems out there. We are not a hidden church. We are not, you know, we are the light on the hill so the whole city can see it. So for orphan justice, that's what I am passionate about. But I, when we move and we choose new churches, if that church is not involved in the community actively outside of the church, we don't go to that church. It doesn't mean that they're not going to heaven, that we don't love them in Christ, that we don't learn from them, that there is beauty there, but we need to act. We need to move. So when the American church is thinking about what they can do from a social justice perspective, we need to listen. We need to figure out who's saying what. We need to approach it with the fact that this is not about us. An example is short-term missions trips, which I have some fairly strong opinions on. So we Please go, share. we go to this other country and we come back and then we say, oh, all those beautiful little brown faces, they're just so happy with nothing. They blessed me more than I blessed them. They changed me more than I changed them. It can be all true. It really can. God uses anything. It's good to open your eyes. It's good to see how someone else lives. But at the same time, how much did we really help them when the trip was mostly about making us feel good about ourselves? So we spend all this money on plane tickets, on transportation, on building materials. And we could have at least the youth group gets to go one or two days to an amusement park, right? Yes. And like I said, God <laughs> I can there. use anything. And I've done this. I have been on those missions trips. I have gone down to Mexico. I have come back feeling really good about myself. And then later on, the more I studied it, especially in my master's program, I see, wow, I probably harmed more than I helped. And a book that majorly changed my life is uh, by Corbett and Feichert. And I always get the title wrong, but When Helping Hurts, I think is the main, When Helping Hurts and it radically rocked my life. In fact, that that's the book that led me to my master's degree program because I realized I had been viewing it all wrong. It totally changed my world. And so we need to have the mindset of not what makes us feel good. So for orphan justice, sure, going and... Uh, maybe you're doing a coat drive for local foster kids, which is fantastic. They need coats. They need to be warm. The Bible obviously directly talks about clothing those who are warm. So that's a great thing. Well, what if instead of thinking, okay, I did something for foster kids, what if we walked it back and talked about prevention? What if the reason that some of these foster kids is ending up in foster care is because they have single mothers who do not feel supported and because they have no social outlets or because they are under such financial strain that they turn to drinking to cope. And then that's what makes them lose the kids. What if we started at the source and we helped preserve families, which might not be as fun because we really like doing things that make us look good. We like taking pictures of it and putting it on Instagram and then like, you know, hashtag social justice, hashtag hands and feet of Christ. What if we started at the beginning and instead of participating in a sexy rescue portion of social justice, what if we started with prevention? What if we started with before someone turns into an addict? What if we started at the source before they go there and we are their friends? We are their helpers. What if somebody needs a bill paid so they don't end up homeless on the street and then turn into an addict and then turn into a prostitute? We always like the end thing that we can say, look at what we did. What if we started at the beginning? And that requires a lot of humility. And instead of giving them what we think they need, which we often do with third world countries, we think that they need a certain thing. What if we asked them and they needed something else, but it's not as Instagrammable? 
So if we can start there as the body of Christ, looking around at the local needs, participating in the reading programs of the local public schools, what and we were doing park beautification, and we were participating in the local athletic events, and we were at the booster club, and the little things that really add up, and we were not letting kids slip through the cracks and become addicts, because we let kids in the church slip through the cracks. So how much more are kids who are not involved in a social anchor like the church, how much more can they slip through the cracks if they don't have someone to care? So it takes a lot of humility. It's something that I am still learning. I can look back now. I was born and raised in the church. I can look back now and see things that I thought were so fantastic, so blessed by God. It was really all about me, and it was about making myself feel good, and a lot of times it was about what I could put on my resume for college scholarships, which is really the wrong motivation. I think when we're younger... I thought I could change the world. Absolutely. But in time, you know what? God hasn't called me to change the world. Mm -hmm. He called me to be changed right where I'm at Mm -hmm. in one way or another. So I think that comes with maturity. I think that comes with trial and error. It Mm -hmm. comes with life, which has its ups, its downs. it's, it's, It's a roller coaster. But through it all, at least we got Jesus Mm -hmm. with us. Mm -hmm. And we can't think that we have the market on Jesus either, that we have all the answers because we're the wealthy Christians in the church up on the hill. And in my case, that was literally. We can't think that we have all the answers, that we have to be just as willing to learn from others who are outside of that perfect little comfortable circle as much as we want them to learn from us. Well, we are not the answer. Jesus is the answer. I love it. You mentioned short-term missions. And actually, missions overall has had a shift since 2004, I agree. 2005. Mm-hmm. And I've actually gotten in trouble preaching this. Yes, you know what? I'm going to offend people when I'm preaching the truth. Mm-hmm. North America is no longer leading in missions. We'll still the send people self. on short-term mission trips and I think that that's good exposure but I think that those things can change instead of being like you said the the people from North America with all the answers people need to go into those with an attitude to serve right not be like I'm here to change your church we are not leading you to the truth we are serving alongside of you and there's a huge difference because one makes them reliant on us the other empowers them Mm, absolutely and the global south is leading in missions. It's Honduras, very true. Uh, Brazil. Look at what God's doing in Brazil. Africa is another huge area. Oh my goodness. Like Explosive growth right now in the church. South Korea mm-hmm. sending more missionaries. So these are things that the church in North America needs to understand. Absolutely. We need to partner with them, not try to lead them mm-hmm. because they're actually already leading themselves. They are. It's and true. We might be left behind. We're actually maybe post Christian as a nation in the United States of America real soon, unless God sends revival, which I'm believing for. But for you, how does God speak to you? You shared how God led you into journalism, into adopting, talked about your articles, but how does God specifically speak to you that some of our listeners can maybe identify with? Rochelle and I just had a conversation. Rochelle is Jared's wife, and we just spent the weekend together. Rochelle is actually my best friend and has been for years, and we just had this conversation. For me, I am an incredibly physical, kinetic person. I hate sitting still, figuratively or literally. I love moving my body. I love being outside. So when I am outside, I often think of the Emily Dickens poem, 
about having church outside, even though I think her theology is a bit flawed, but I appreciate the sentiment. Um, God often speaks to me when I am outside, when my head is clear, when my thoughts are turned. I think of Romans 1.18. It talks about so that they are without excuse because he has revealed himself through creation. He often speaks to me when I am moving. To me, sweat is an anointing oil. And I feel holiest, in a sense, when I am sweating. I feel very connected to God. I think that the Christian church ignores the physical body a lot because it's not spiritual. They encourage you to be healthy, sure, but I think that they almost make you feel bad for enjoying your body. Um, That can extend from enjoying food, enjoying sex with your spouse, enjoying fashion and beauty and jewelry. And I think that God designed us to be beauty lovers because when we seek beauty, we're really seeking Christ. And God can meet us there in that beauty. And to me, there's nothing more beautiful than moving my physical body outside. So yes, absolutely, through being outside, through running, through any sort of cardio exercise, not through lifting weights, not through ninja. But a second way he speaks very strongly to me is through music. I am a classically trained pianist in my former life. That was my biggest career goal. I absolutely love playing the piano. I love singing. I love worshiping. And worshiping has become, in the last year, it has become my oxygen to where I will have a spiritual concept illuminated to me through a worship song or a hymn. I will feel God's presence very strongly in corporate worship by myself so for me it's always getting outside of myself getting sometimes literally getting outside reminding that it's not all about me america is such an individualistic nation which can be really fantastic but the drawback is that it really becomes all about you but when you are worshiping in a corporate setting it becomes all about Christ in a very visible way. That the reason we're all here is not to meet as a social club or for the casseroles that are coming after the service, but to talk about this invisible, present, all-powerful God and to see what we can learn from each other. And there's a reason that the New Testament talks about do not give up the habit of meeting together as some do. And that is a somewhat of a paraphrase, but that's why we meet together to feel God's presence. And that's when I feel God most powerfully in my life is an individual worship at home, which I have on a daily basis. I cannot live without in corporate worship and being outside. And the best for me is when you can combine all of those Uh, When my husband and I were in Greece, we were sitting at the the island of Santorini. It's just a series of volcanoes, and we watched the sun set at the top of this volcano, and Santorini is breathtakingly beautiful, and it was the most gorgeous sunset. And without even realizing I was doing it, I just started singing How Great Thou Art, some of the best worship I've ever had because it's stunning. You have the music, the volcano, the hot husband, the sunset, everything just was working for me and checking all my boxes, and we had run up there. So it's pretty much amazing. But yeah, that's when I most feel Christ's work. And unfortunately for me as a human, I also feel Christ in the moments of absolute crappiness when I am at my worst. And I wonder, where are you, God? And he answers and says, right here, and I can see it all, and I still love you. And that's not fun, but it's powerful and it's life-changing. Wow. How can people keep in touch with you? Well, the best way would be my daughter's Facebook fan page. It's called Guyana's Groupies. It's spelled just like the country, G-U-Y-A-N-A, Guyana's Groupies, as in like the music fan base. And that is on Facebook. She has a pretty popular Facebook page that we would love for you to follow. I love it. Well, 
Crystal, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Crystal, thank you for being real. Thank you so much for listening to our conversation and adventures in the spirit. We hope that this podcast encouraged and inspired you to press into Jesus and launches you into your own adventure. You can stay up to date with Fireborn Ministries by going to our website, firebornministries.com and like us on Facebook. And may you have your own adventures in the spirit. The is it morning yet deal. How about now? Or now? Because morning time is McDonald's breakfast time. And that's the best time of all the times. Get any sized iced coffee for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. And sweeten the deal when you pair it with a baked apple or pumpkin and creme pie. After all, why wait to treat yourself? Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba.